Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Greetings, music nerds, and welcome to Season 5 of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. I'm your host, Steve Dawson, coming to you from the Hen House Studio in Nashville, Tennessee. I'd just like to thank everyone for tuning in and being an encouraging audience over the last few years, and I'm sure you will enjoy this season as well. We'll take some deep musical dives together in the coming months, and I'm looking forward to sharing some of these conversations I've been having with some incredible musicians and music producers with you. We have a couple of continuing sponsors that help to bring you each episode this season. The first is Union Tube and Transistor, making incredible guitar effect pedals out of Vancouver, BC. My old pal Chris Young at Union has been laying stuff on me for years, starting with his prototype Buzz Bomb pedal about 15 years ago. Since then, he's become a leading light in boutique pedal manufacturers with an extensive line of pedals like the Moore pedal, the Lab Compressor, and the Sone Bender that are constants in my recording world. Check out their line of pedals at uniontone.com. And the second sponsor for the season is Black Mountain Thumbpicks. I've been using these myself for several months, and I think they're great. Cole McBride, the owner, is trying to make everybody happy and now has medium gauge, heavy gauge, jazz-tipped, left-handed, and regular and extra-tight spring tensions available. Check them out at blackmountainpicks.com. So even though I've been doing this podcast for about five years, my heart just isn't into hounding companies for advertising dollars. So as always, this show mostly relies on listener support to keep going. And thanks to everyone that has done that in the past. It's a huge help to know that there's people out there willing to kick in to make it all possible. So if you're interested in doing so, there's a few simple ways to help out. First of all, please just tell your music nerd pals about this show. Word of mouth is probably the best way to get the show heard more. If you're in a position to kick in a bit financially, you can make a one-time donation or join in on my Patreon account, which is a monthly donation billed directly to your credit card at any amount of your choice. You'll also get access through Patreon to some private videos and other stuff as I make it available. And the third way that you can help out is to buy a t-shirt or other swag as it comes available. You can have a look at those or make a donation or join the Patreon all at the new website, which is www.makersandshakerspodcast.com. And please don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get them from. And while you're at it, folks, don't forget to have a listen to our offshoot show called One Life featuring Jim Burns. It's a fun concept podcast involving live improvised music and off-the-cuff storytelling. I think you might dig it. And finally, please follow the show on social media. I have links to Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook all on the website as well as a YouTube link. And that YouTube channel actually is going to get a bit more action this year. In the past, I've just put up links to some live performances, but I will be starting a video series this year about music and recording that I think you might dig. So please subscribe to my YouTube channel as well. 
Links are all at the top of the page at www.makersandshakerspodcast.com and at my personal website, which is stevedawson.ca. So that's about it for the biz side of things. Let's get going. On to this week's show. All right, everybody, welcome back. This is part two of my conversation with Bill Payne, episode 106. If you have not listened to part one yet, please go back and do that. And this is part two. Let's jump right in with where we left off with my conversation with Bill Payne. When you guys put out your first record, I know it wasn't like a big commercial success or anything, but were you starting to um, tour nationally and get some notoriety outside of L.A.? Or like, I don't know what the early Little Feet situation was in that regard. Well, 71 was when we, or 70, as I said, we were at the Reflections Club. That was our first national tour. Warner's was, was helping pay for it. And that took us through the upper... Great Lakes, or, you know, the Great Lakes region. So we're, I think we're in Cleveland. Yeah. And the Vanilla Fudge, we were playing a gig with them. And, and we're playing our songs, you know, and, uh, these crazy tunes that we've written. <laughs> and people are going, bring on the fudge. <laughs> I'm like, oh, God, okay, don't kill us. And, uh, you know, we had a 1,000 people at the Reflections Club in uh, Cincinnati. Played two nights, I think Christmas and Christmas Eve. Or yeah. Christmas day or the you know really day. yeah so christmas day and then the next day 25th and 26th well they were all there to sing ohio football songs <laughs> buckeye songs woody uh, hayes was the, what a disappointment the coach man he was the coach oh we we could have been you know up there naked and playing each other's in, instruments if, if not something else and they wouldn't have cared we were yeah. a backdrop to something that was neither here nor there. So the second night, Richie said, came up to Law and I said, can I introduce the band? So we looked at him like, you want to go ahead. <laughs> uh, so he goes up there. Hey, he, he gets up to the mic and people are like, oh, oh, football. And Richie pulls his sausage out of his pants he cuts off the tip of it with a knife and takes a bite of it and says, ladies and gentlemen, please enter, I were, uh, please welcome Little Feet. Nothing. And he goes back, to, he goes back to the drums and goes, one, two, three, you know, four-letter expletives, and we start off the first song. Well, it turns out that Craig Fuller was in the audience that night. As we really? Four to the eight other people that, that were, like, again, like a Dickinson tale. They yeah. were involved with Little Feet over a period Crazy. of years that actually saw him do that. Wow. They told us that later. I go, you were there for that? And they go, yep. Weird. <laughs> <laughs> like, would you pull into towns like in the Midwest and people would know your record or was that not really happening? God, we pull into towns 12 years later. No one would know who we were. <laughs> I, mean, uh, uh, I had to convince people, the, the, the business people we had to let us sell our own records at our gigs. Holy and, shit. and they go, well, why would you want to do that? Isn't that like beneath, beneath you to do that? I said, just give me a box of records or two boxes, and I'll, I'll, I'll tell you what we do. Yeah. So I said, we go into a town, let's say, and it, it was literally in Iowa. And I said, it's a, a medium-sized town. I don't know where it was. But let's say they have three record stores there, which is a lot for a medium-sized town. Yep. They only have three of the latest record, which makes a total of nine by my calculator. 
of the latest album. We just sold 50 of them last night. They went, oh, boom, we were off and running. It's where we're people. You, inv- you invented with, the merch table. Well, I didn't, but I got to say that we, <laughs> we, what we, what you run into all the time, and we're still seeing it with the, with the, the vaccinate, the, the vaccines that are trying to yeah. come into the people's arms. Thank God it's not the people's asses or they, we got another vaccine up their ass. Uh, <laughs> it's all in the arm. Okay, great. That's perfect. So tell me about the reimagining of the band when Dixie Chicken happened. You added Paul Barrere came in and Sam Clayton came in. And was Fred Tackett already in the band or was he in for that no, record Fred, too? Fred was a dear friend of ours. In fact, the very first gig we ever played where we were paid for it, Fred Tackett arranged. And it was a Jimmy Webb's birthday party over in Seattle. Really? Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> so Fred Fred is one of the very first people I, I came to meet in Los Angeles. Uh, Jackson mm-hmm. was... Jackson Brown was another, uh, another one, as was Randy Newman and Van Dyke yeah. Parks. Uh, and then, then uh, uh, many people in the Mothers. Roy was always threatening to quit the band. And we're like, oh, please don't quit. We got this tour lined up. Oh, <laughs> got another record coming. Okay. And Roy's a wonderful player. I mean, you know, he's, in, he's in jail now for the rest of his life for oh, flashing, uh, flashing young children. So... Oh my God! Uh, which is really, I didn't know oh that. Oh my God, indeed. But at the time, we we were, you know, blissfully un- unaware. We would have yeah. called the cops and said, "Arrest this fool." But there we are, with with on a tour, and once again, Cincinnati, and this time mm. it was Captain Beefheart, yeah, and Little Feet. Okay. I met Don Van Vliet years before that. Where I actually met Ry Cooter, who was in a in a um, closet. Actually, he was. His ha- half his legs were coming out of the closet, and I said, "Who's that?" And they go, I, "Somehow I got backstage." They go, "That's Ryan Cooter." I said, well, "Is he okay?" <laughs> I don't know. I hope so. Okay, great. Anyway, the the, the system for the the gig uh, that we were playing with, with Beefheart, uh, sound system went down. Yeah, audience is all there. They're all waiting. How long is it going to take to fix it? Could take an hour. We don't know. Lowell goes, I'm going to go ice skating. <laughs> I'm like, oh, man. God. Oh, oh. I'm going with you. So <laughs> I'm looking at him skating around the ice, you know, whistling, doing all this skating backwards. And, and I'm looking at my watch. Going, oh, Lowell, got to go. Let's go. <laughs> and we, we were gone maybe a little more than an hour. In fact, the yeah. cab could barely find his way back to the gig. We went, there it is there. We threw money at him, ran ran back. It's January, so it's kind of oh, icy. Yeah. We walk in, and there's literally a line that included Roy Estrada. Of, and I don't know if, if, if Don, if uh, Captain Beefheart was in that line or not, but most of his band were, and uh, Artie Tripp, who used to play drums for uh, the Mothers, and they were looking at us as if we had just run over their pet dog. Artie was from Cincinnati, I believe. So he had his family there. I don't blame him. I would have been furious yeah. at us. And um, Had Beefheart played already? No, they were waiting for us to play. Okay. So, so you were supposed to do the first set. Oh, man. <laughs> so, yeah. So we we finally got up there and played. But, man, we were right after that. Uh, uh, Roy jumped from the frying pan into the fire and joined Okay, so that was the like the last straw for him. Basically. That was the last straw. 
<laughs> okay. And so where did you find, all, where did you find Kenny Gradney and all, like, how did Kenny, that all come about? Kenny Gradney uh, was introduced to us uh, by Rick Harper, who was our road manager, but he knew, um, this is horrible because I can't remember the, the names, the, the, the original uh, Dolph Ramp and uh, God, it was his partner. I hope you'll forgive me if he's still alive. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> it formed SIR. Oh, okay. Yeah. They were the original guys that, that formed it. They knew of Delaney and Bonnie. They know, they knew Kenny mm-hmm. and they said, you ought to audition this guy. Okay. And we did. And I did. And I thought, God, this, he's got the gig. Was there a period of time, like when those guys came into the fold where you sort of formulated, cause the sound shifted there, you know, like it, it got a lot kind of funkier and more spacious and as but at the same would, time having more layers, like, yeah, as, that it, a, as it would, you know, I mean, because yeah. those guys are from Delaney and Bonnie. Uh, we were, we were pretty well versed in, in New Orleans kind of music anyway. So we, we just shifted gears. Barrer uh, came in with a blues, a blues uh, foundation to, to his, yeah. his music and, and the way he sang. And so the way Little Feet was set up, uh, from the get-go was it allowed for those influences to permeate and and, yeah. and percolate. And uh, otherwise, you, you would have been, you know, playing another version of uh, Here Comes the Sun. I mean, I don't know. I, right, that's right. a poor analogy. But a lot of bands get, uh, the Beatles not one of them, obviously, but a lot of groups get kind of stuck in a, a certain sound, right? Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, Little Feet had its own sound, but the music was always different. So I, I always joked, I said, if we were to play Happy Birthday, you would know it was Little Feet. Yeah. And later, yeah. having played on, I mean, many, many records over the years, people go, you know, I'd always know when it was you playing. You weren't playing the same thing, but it was a, yeah. a thing that, you know, I could... There's I could, a s- identifiable sound for sure. You know, so if it was yeah. Shame on the Moon with, with Seeger... Uh, if it was one of the, you know, I feel I feel the same as Chris Smithers' song with Bonnie Raitt. People are going, yeah, I, I knew that was you. I knew that was you playing. Did you know it was me when I was playing with the Butthole Surfers? No. <laughs> well, check it out. Do you ha- have good recollection of recording that Dixie Chicken record? To me, that like that record had a real a real identifiable sound. It was a new direction for you guys. For me, like personally, it was a huge influence and I still think of that record as like one of the great sounding records of the seventies. I just wondered if you had any stories or recollections of that particular session. I, I, I don't offhand. Would it have been done pretty live too, or were you guys kind of more experimenting at that stage? I think the good, a good portion of it would have been live. I always uh, opted for the ability to do overdubs when I could, I suppose. I can't remember what studio we did. Did we do that at Sunset Sound or? I don't know. Yeah. There's not much information on that record out there, really. Yeah. Like, it's a bit of a mystery. Well, we, like I said, we were shifting in and around studios back in the day, so it's hard for me yeah. to. Well, Sunset Sound t- was a really good place for us to record. And, yeah. But I don't know if we were in. The, that may have been the record we were with Robert Appere. I just have to look at the credits and see. So a tune like Lafayette Railroad that you, I think that that's a you and Lowell George tune. Uh Did that just sort of come out of a jam kind of a thing? Or did you, like, were you kind of writing instrumentals like that? That's such an evocative 
tune. I, I love that song. I'm, I've always been curious about how that came together. Well, I, as I recall, we, we were just sitting around playing some stuff and I, we're, we're jamming a little bit on it, I suppose. But um, I, I tend to, when I sit down to play stuff, I can take it really far out, but I also have, I, I know structure of song. So I, I, I've got a tendency to, to, to pull that into the quotient. So, uh, and, and Lowell, Lowell was certainly capable of that as well. All right, so the recording studios were uh, Sunset Sound, uh, Clover, so I was right on both of those. What was Clover? Clover was where Robert Appere worked. It was, it was over, oh, okay. I think, on Santa Monica Boulevard. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, we did it at Clover in uh, North Hollywood. And what about your equipment? Like, you know, you'd started sort of as a piano player, but you'd gotten into the organ. You've got, uh, by that time, you've got Whirly going. And then around that time, you started playing, like experimenting more sonically with uh, early synthesizers and stuff like that. What was that path like for you? Well, that path was, as things would open up, uh, each, not so much the Wurlitzer, the Wurlitzer was, was up against the roads, the Fender yeah. roads. Right. Fender roads had a certain sound to it, more, a smoother sound. I gravitated to the, the Wurlitzer because, and I played them both, by the way, but I liked the Wurlitzer because it had a, a you, could, you could... It cuts more. Cuts more, yeah. It was, I, I, was do, I was doing licks that were in... Uh, Keith Richards was inspiring me to play. Ah, oh, cool. So a guitar player kind of licks but played on a keyboard. Yeah, uh, you know, like the stuff he, he later played on uh, uh, Brown Sugar and um, mm-hmm. little chord clusters and stuff. Anyway, Keith's uh, playing was was uh, influential on my keyboard style, at least at least with the uh, the Wurlitzer, the synthesizer stuff. Bob Margoloff and um, his partner uh, Cecil. Uh, I guess it was his last name, Cecil. Were those two guys were had done all the synth program for programming for Stevie Wonder for one of his. Oh, albums. okay. So they were there working with us, and you know I used it. I think we played on Himmler's Ring or something like that. And I just thought, God, you know, as good as those guys are, what if I don't agree with their sound? What? So I thought, I ought to, at first I was like, I really don't want to play the synths because I'm going to sound like everybody else. Right, and then it hit me right after I said, "I go wait, well, no, hold on a second. If I'm playing an acoustic piano, and then I, the same piano five minutes later, Mac Rabinat, Doctor John, comes up and plays, and then Randy Newman playing it, and uh, then uh, Clyde Giesecking, who was a classical pianist, that would probably sound like four or five different pianos, yeah, because of the way that the guy touches it and does. It. And I said, so with a synthesizer." If you can manipulate that sound, you're broadening that even further as mm-hmm. as a means to to have uh, whatever influence you have on the instrument heard and felt. So you started actually like getting in and tweaking the electronics of the synth after as after well? not during that record, but later because I said you know I uh, I may not hear something like the way they heard it. And they, they were obviously yeah. very good at what they did. Uh, but I, I thought, how would I hear that, that sound? How would I blend that into a track? I mean, I played yeah. pipe organ. I played all these different instruments that you were talking about. 
and the sounds were just starting to to really erupt, so to speak, with regard to, to a, a string type sounds, you know, all, all manner of things, kind of kind of like the sounds you would hear on a Casio. And so, in the in the heyday of all that stuff, like what what all were you hauling around with you at Little Feet on tours? Like, did you have an did you have like a B three, a piano, a Whirly, and then a rack of synths as well? Like, well, I'm sure the piano was provided for us. The, okay. The, I might have carried a Wurlitzer. I don't remember. I think, I think the Wurlitzer and the B three and all that stuff. I might have. I might have had a B three even back then because I had written about uh, the first, not the first time I played a B three, but one at, at, a, at a club called the Cheetah, which was on the Santa Monica area, one of the piers down there, which burnt down yeah. a year later or less after we played that club. There was a set of stairs that were like, I don't know, 60 <laughs> stairs going straight up. Oh, we're brutal. pushing that B3 up there, and Lowell looks at me and goes, we're not doing that again. And I go, you're right, Lowell. So we called up keyboard products, and I got a cut-down B3, which was transistors rather than tubes. Okay. And that, that instrument sounds plenty good. It's on Waiting for Columbus. Okay. For example. And that does sound good. It sounds great. So like a lot of things... I sometimes withhold information just because I don't want to. I don't want to plant something in people's heads that that gets them to think in a way that's derogatory to something that if you didn't tell them what it was, uh-huh. they'd go, "God, oh, that that chocolate pie is really good." Oh, you think that's a chocolate pie, do you? It's, it's really, uh, you know, <laughs> it's a lot of sugar mixed with you know, yeah. baked beans and God knows what else. I just put them in a blender. Uh, <laughs> Here's your barf bag. Uh, so there, there's a lot of that going around. Uh, and mm-hmm. People to this day, we're, we're all super sensitive to things. Uh, the, the, the COVID area has, has really forced a lot of us to, to deal directly with what's in front of us. Whether it's, we're doing this as a Zoom thing or I see you got a mic in front of you. I, I never owned a mic until about eight months ago. Wow, that's amazing. I mean, never. I mean, I had a couple I used, but nothing that was, um, you know, that you put put in front of anything. In fact, the the mics I have, I'll throw in a, a Roswell. Oh yeah, it's one of those new ones. Yeah, yeah they're, it's it's really they're really good. They're good. good. Yeah, yeah, I've got a, a couple of them. In your session work, like you've done so many sessions, it's crazy. Uh, was that was was getting involved in, in the studio scene, something that you set out to do, or did that just happen? Like people just started calling you and. I wanted to do it, but Lowell got me a gig. He, he says, uh, he's playing, I've been playing with a fraternity of man, which I mentioned earlier. Yeah. He said, uh, there's a gig you could play, uh, with this group, uh, called the GTOs girls together outrageously. The groupies, right? Yeah. And I went, yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> so <laughs> I played on that record. And yeah. there it just went, it just blossomed. Because there was a time in the, I guess, the 70s, 80s and stuff where you were playing on so many records. I don't know how you were maintaining a road career. Well, I don't know. how. In fact, I, I joked about it that I, it's amazing I could remember what I played on. In fact, <clears throat> I was at Sunset Sound. And they had all these albums that were ringing the walls. Some gold records, but, but uh, more records that were just like the album covers. Yeah, and I took yeah. one down that looked kind of interesting. I turned it around and it, was, it had my name on it. I, I turned it back <laughs> on the front. I go, 
I don't remember playing on this. And I went, oh, my God, I'm working too There's much. There's probably a ton of those. And I was like this young kid. I thought, am I already losing my mind now? I mean, it's a little early for that, isn't it? Um, so, <laughs> What did you like about playing on sessions? Because it's so different from doing a live thing. And you, you were so good at it so quickly. Like you weren't, uh, you weren't a schooled session player necessarily, yeah, but you yeah. seemed to fit the mold perfectly for starting. I don't know if that Emmylou, that string of Emmylou records that you played on was the first outside of Little Feet sessions you'd done. But, no, there was, uh, that, was, that was quite a ways into it, I think. Okay. Um, no, there, I mean, I did, uh, Earl Palmer was playing drums. Yeah. One time, or a few times. <clears throat> nicest, nicest guy. Uh, and he was really uh, very supportive of what I was doing. Yeah. Um, There's just two musicians. And I, I, a lot of these guys like Earl, I mean, I knew he was a famous guy. I mm-hmm. might've known a couple things he played on, but I didn't know he played with little Richard and some of those folks. And I just thought maybe it was a good thing I did because I would have been very intimidated by it. Yeah. Uh, what I liked about it was a playing with those musicians, B uh, and well, and more so perhaps is, is the invite itself, which is you're, you're down there and somebody wants you to, to be involved in, in their, what their dream is, which right. is making a record and bringing a song to fruition. I mean, what's the best? So I was writing charts for people. I would sometimes get up there and I go, this section here, I literally rip the paper in half and go, throw that away. Let's start from here. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com acast, and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com acast. Uh, so you're you were producing? Well, not really, but I was. <laughs> Sounds like it. <laughs> uh, and or an MD, which they call him, which I never considered yeah. myself, but a musical director of sorts. Yeah. But yeah, I, I I knew kind of when to to lay back and uh, mm-hmm. uh, there was a record I did. I'll just put it this way: I came and wrote a chart for for somebody and a dear friend. Mm-hmm. And the musicians on there were from New York, and I'd always gotten people like to to read my stuff and go, uh, I, "I go, I know I didn't uh, write this correctly." And the guy would go, "No, I know it's a it's it's a quarter note to you know a half note." Yeah, we're, we're cool. <clears throat> These guys wouldn't do it. Oh, okay. And one of them I knew, I really knew I knew him his drummer, and I go, "Well, I know I didn't write that, but but this is." They go, nope, that's not what you wrote. And I looked at them and I go, you know what? 
you just screwed this artist out of a really good chart with this bullshit. Yeah, yeah, <clears throat> yeah. And I accept it, but I'm going to learn how to do this. The next time anybody gives me a grief for this shit, I'm going to throw it right down your throats. <laughs> good for you. <laughs> it happened a few years later. I was back east and doing something. So I said, take the F sharp out of that, your trombone part. And, uh, I wanted an F natural. Because that's not what's written. Ugh. That's what shove it up your ass and get out your fucking eraser. <laughs> and yeah. it, was, it was New York and the guys that were there going, whoa. Like, I said, look, I know I'm from L.A., but I don't, I may as well be from New York. I don't, I yeah. don't live anywhere, okay? But I, 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 that was the one time I just said, I'm, I'm coming down hard on this stuff because yeah. it's an insult to the guy's musicianship. I'm, I'm willing, more than willing to, to talk about people. I said, this is a song I wrote with Robert Hunter, one of probably 16 at the time. I wound up writing 20 songs with Bob Hunter mm-hmm. from The Grateful Dead. And I said, and as such, whoever wrote the chart, which was not me, I'm compelled to tell you what it is. And you're compelled to say, yeah, I'll play it that way. And so that's, that's what we worked out. You know, musicians are just a weird lot. I mean, I'll give you one quick story about uh, a guy named Roger Bobo. He was, I, don't, I, I hope Roger's still alive. He's a, he's a great cat. He's a what does he play? Tuba. He's one of the foremost tuba players in the world, or was. Okay, yeah. Uh, and I think if he's still alive, he lives in Italy. And he was a good, good friend of uh, Fred Tackett. Okay. And we were back in New York one time, and, talking about some stuff. It was at the Eastman School of Music. Roger said, you know, Zubin Mehta, the conductor for the LA Phil, mm-hmm. he says, you know, the musicians there will go amongst themselves. Don't, or if some new guy comes in, don't look at him. He'll throw you, he'll throw you off when he's doing all these gyrations. Just read, oh, yeah. read the music. <laughs> Just let him do his thing. Read well, your thought, music. Yeah. I know musicians are irreverent, but uh, <laughs> they're irreverent whether you're a classical musician, any kind of musician. It just comes with the territory. We don't yeah, yeah. We don't accept know, responsibility or, or authority. And we expect we we excuse me, we don't we don't uh, get, get along well with authority. For the most part. So when you showed up for a session, you know, like say, like an Emily Harris session or a Bonnie Raitt session or whatever, like, so, like somebody, someone that you knew, but but that wasn't a band that you were in, like you were a hired gun basically for that mm-hmm. record. Would you be expected to write charts for those sessions as well? No, but if I if they needed it, I'd do it. Like, are you talking notation charts or no, no, more like just, chord charts? Chord charts, but but here's here's a couple notations that we're gonna we're gonna right. go bah, bah, bah. Yeah. Uh, oh, I didn't exactly know how to write that then. Funny and the two and the three. Yeah. Finally learned how to do it, but but I didn't know how to do it at the time. Uh, I wasn't sure I'd, I'd need to know it. Uh, that's the other thing with with a lot of people. It's not just musicians, but you get see if you get to a point where you think I don't want to mess up what I have by by bringing in too much learned uh, response to things. Yeah. I talked to a guy that we uh, he was a driver in a car that was called to pick me up someplace and take me from the airport to the hotel, you know, one of the cities I was at. And it turns out he was a keyboard player. And I said, uh, like, have you ever, uh, like studied scales or, you know, cause you're saying you're having a little trouble with, with a couple of things technically with, with stuff. 
He says, no, not really. I said, I bet you're not doing it because you're afraid it'll take away from your, from your creative side, right? He says, yeah. yeah. I said, well, I used to think that way too, but I'm just going to lay this out and do whatever you want. But I think what you might explore is the sensibility of, of learning what a scale is. So there's no, that's a key of C, let's say. Where, where do you got in the key of G? There's one sharp, for example. You just go through it in fifths and start to see how it builds. And think of it in these terms that what you're, all you're doing is adding to your vocabulary. You're not taking away from it. Right. And he says, you know, I never thought of it like that. I said, well, that's why I'm, I'm sharing it with you because I never did either. But I think I've, I had a pretty precise way of, of, of convincing myself why to do it. And I thought, uh, where, where I can help people or, or think I can help people, I don't hesitate from, from doing it. And did you, like, when you do a, a lot of that kind of work, does that kind of stuff come really quickly and naturally and easily to you? Do you just show up and kind of like one of your first ideas ends up being the thing that you keep? Uh, or are you an experimenter in the studio? Or how do you like to work, ideally? Well, ideally, uh, what's the best way to put this? It's kind of like when you hit the stage, you can do a bit of both. Yeah. In other words, the practicing is over. It's time to play. Right. Do you like to get the material beforehand? Like, say, if you're going to play on a Bonnie Wright record or something, do you like to hear the stuff or do you want to just come in and rip it? I'll just play. Yeah. Yeah. Because what I'm doing is if I'm I'm in a session with people and I'm I'm playing the song with them literally at the same time, which doesn't, certainly doesn't happen in this world anymore, but... uh, I would occasionally be in a room playing with folks and I'd think, okay, I'm going to wait for Sting to catch up with me on the bass. <laughs> We're playing on a Brian Adams cut. And later they call me up and they go, Bill, we changed the key to the song. And it wasn't Sting. It was another produ- as a producer. Yeah. I was over in London playing on or three months. Mutt Lang or something like that, maybe. Well, I, I worked with Mutt and Mutt was uh, the uh, producer and ostensibly the engineer for everything I do, I do for you, which was a right. Robin Hood movie. This yeah. is for the Three Musketeers, but still Brian Adams. But it was the Three Musketeers in this case were Brian Sting and Rod Stewart. Okay, and I've worked with Rod in the studio. He was a delight. Uh, after the fact, he he liked what I played. I guess there was at that studio, uh, and was it Chris Kimsey? I think. Uh, he used to produce the Stones, called me up and said, we, we've changed the key. And so I go on, I go, so what is it? it was, say it was in B. It's now B flat. I go, okay. <laughs> so I walked out there and played it. And I came back in and he's like, looked at me and I go, Chris, you almost look disappointed. Well, how, how did you do that so quickly? I said, you know, Bonnie Raitt had a song by a gal named Sippy Wallace that she used to sing. It was called, It's Easy If You Know How. That's right. It's language, <laughs> right? It's like a, it's like a, it's just a, another way of speaking for you. I did the same thing with Joe Cocker. We were playing a gig at Madison Square Garden. Yeah. And it was uh, um, to um, salute the life of, of, uh, of uh, John Lee Hooker. John oh Lee. shit, you know what? I, I think I was at that show. Yeah, was yeah. it in like, the, was it in the early 90s? Yeah, probably. It was it was held at the Madison Square Garden, right? 
I was there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I was up there with Willie Dixon, uh, Johnny Winter, and Greg Allman, yeah. Joe Cocker. And Cocker, the, the, the rehearsals were, were fantastic, right? Especially with, 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 uh, with Willie Dixon. I bet. It was just amazing. Uh, it was Richie Hayward playing drums, Paul Brer on guitar, myself on keyboards. Um, George was Porter. Willie playing bass or was he just singing? No, George Porter was, was playing bass. Okay. He was just singing. Yeah. Cocker was doing, I think, like a Marvin Gaye tune or something. I don't know. What, I don't remember which one it was. But he came in the next day with a sort of gleeful idea that I'm going to change the arrangement. And, and George Porter was the guy, but he's talking to me about it. He's going, we're going to do this and this and that and this. And I, I'm writing it down. I go, okay. <laughs> and, and again, he gave me that look like, well, what? what? I, I said, Joe, it's just music, man. I mean, I know we're going to go out there yeah. in front of 18,000 people in 20 minutes, but I think we can do this. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, you know. <laughs> and we did. We went out there because I was like, I said, we do this, change this to, a, you know, just look at your chart. We're, 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 these are the changes yeah. we're making. But yeah. I, I, I think it's more of an English thing. They just want to screw with Americans, with Yanks. Really? Yeah. <laughs> he wants to make you look bad. Yeah, which is okay, man. <laughs> you don't have to go very far to do that. <laughs> do it myself. Don't worry. In your epic career of doing this stuff, do you have any sessions that to you were like the most memorable or that you think capture what you do musically the best, like when you look back on them or when you hear them again and think like that was really the like a, a really high point for you? There's probably a lot. There are a lot. Uh, I'll just, I'll distill it in this manner to a Jimmy Buffett record. Really? Yeah. It was. Why? Uh, why is that? Well, I'm going to tell you why it was, it was uh, an album we did in Key West, which was just a, a magical place to record. He had a studio there or something. Yeah. Okay. Uh, 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 we had the greatest engineers on the planet. Uh, we were all in a room. Ralph McDonald was in there. Sonny Landreth was in back of me playing nice. slide guitar. Uh, Mac McAnally was there. Uh, the engineers, like I said, were, 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 were impeccable. It was a country record he was doing. It was a license to chill. Okay. And I, we were supposed to I take four or five days to do it. I think we did it in three or four days. Glenn Wharf was playing bass. Uh, oh, he's great. Yeah, Glenn was cool. Um, you know, uh, Mike Otley was the other keyboard player. Mike was pre predominantly playing B3. I was playing piano. Occasionally, okay. we might have switched up. Uh, I don't remember. But Do you like doing that? Having multiple keyboard players? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I'm fine. Yeah. I love it. I, uh, uh, to me, it's just a matter of, of it's whether you're in the studio, whether you're in the studio, in a garage, in a rehearsal hall, or on stage, be it at a small club or in front of thirty to sixty thousand people, you're there to, uh, within reason, be able to hear whom you're playing with, and play to them and with them. Yeah. Uh, now, some people have the attitude that we're going to go out there and we're going to play it like, uh, like the record, just like the record. And could I do it? I probably could. I don't like doing it. What I like doing when I used to work with Bob Seeger, because they kind of called me on, they go, 
well, you need to play it like the record. And I said, look, I played on the record, okay? <laughs> Why don't I do and I, like I, Here's what I'm going to suggest to you, is that I want to play all the iconic licks of what I think of as iconic licks on that record. Yeah. So if it's black Use rock, that as a framework. Yeah. Here's the lick yeah. of like a rock. Here's what it is. Hollywood Nights, this is what I did. You should know. I should know I'm the cat that played it. So if, <laughs> if you want me to do something different, after you hear what I'm doing, which is I'm, I'm sort of working off the drums and, yeah, and the, and, and Rick responding, being a human. I'm, yeah, I'm playing, man. Yeah. They, and I think it elevates your music. If you don't think it does, then I'll go back to and I'll make it sound as good as I can. Mm-hmm. We're not in a studio any longer. We're playing live. And they yep. listen to it and they went, yeah, just do what you want. <laughs> Point taken. Well, I just look. I I figured this, and it doesn't always work this way. When people hire me, I'm not being egotistical about it. I mean, they hire me because I play well. Yeah. And they they have some evidence of, of what I've done. And I always love it when people go, do you play the B3? And I go, well, yeah, and, uh, against the wind and, you know, throw out a few other songs. They go, oh, okay, got it. Um, you know, I'm there to take direction. But I'm also there yeah. to provide what I can provide, right? Uh, so if it's a record like on one of the, I think I must have, the, the Google says I've played on more than one uh, uh, <laughs> record with the, the boys from England that did the wall. Uh, Pink, Floyd. Pink Floyd. Yeah, you played on Momentary Lapse of Reason, I think. Right? Yeah, I played on a, you know, on a song or two. At any rate, one of those records that I played on, the producer, Bob Ezrin, who I will name, was at 10 in the morning. David Gilmore was there with Jeff Picaro, who got me the gig. And... Before I even hit the keyboard, he says, I want you to gliss up from here and come up to the high C and hold it there for four beats, and then we'll take it from wow. there. I mean, through the whole song, I want you to play a triad, a D, an F sharp, an A, then slip your thumb down to the C sharp, E, A. Oh, my God. And I just went, all right, whatever you want. If David Gilmore had wanted to hear something different, I would have thought yeah. he would have said so. He never yeah. did. And out of respect to him and to Jeff, you deferred. I did. Demurred. I just went, whatever you want to do is, uh, is what I'll do. And, and that was it. And my son later, my son said, uh, you know, it was one of the, the worst records they'd ever made. And I, I went, yeah, I wonder why. <laughs> I yeah, still it was very controlled. It, I still thought it probably sounded pretty good, but it was, it was controlled by that, by Ezrin. Ezrin yeah. should have known better. And, and Bob, you probably will never hear this, but if you do, you should have known better. <laughs> well, no, I, th- I totally agree because who knows what, <laughs> what interesting wild stuff would have come out of your hands if he'd just yeah, let you go. It wouldn't have necessarily been much different. And I would have glissed up to a high C or whatever uh, if he had said <laughs> so. But let me, you know, I'm there to provide what I need. I was working with, with Paul Simon on a tour with he and, and Artie uh, Garfunkel. And I watch him every day go around to people saying, play this, do this, do that, that. I'd already been working with James Taylor for a long time. I thought, you know, Paul, when he comes to me, which he will, if he's got 50 ways to do it, you know, ha-ha, I'm going to figure out 53 ways to do it. <laughs> and it wasn't like a contest or anything. Um, but he, we, we were sitting there talking, and, and about, I'll say seven minutes into it, I said, look, here's what you did five minutes ago. I yeah. want to combine that with what we did literally three takes ago. 
yeah. for what I want to do now. And he looks, he goes, you don't need any help, and walked away. And what I was trying Perfect. to impress upon Paul was I'm absolutely paying attention to what you're telling me mm-hmm. and how I can integrate what you're telling me to put in to, to my verbiage. Uh, but here's what I have to offer as a, as a guy that actually plays keyboards. And it's played, That's on, the thing. And it's played on a lot yeah. of stuff. And yeah. I, there's no intimidation between me and you. Uh, I, I love who you are uh, as a, as a player and, and yeah. your songs. Writer I mean, and... My God, I ought to be on my hands and knees bowing to you. But when I'm working with people, that goes out the window. I'm there yeah. eye level with whomever mm-hmm. I'm working with. And that's the only it has way, to be like it that. has to be that way. Otherwise, you you, you get uh, you can't play. Right. You know what? Right. Are, what do they think about the way I play? You know, who cares? <laughs> you know, show them, show well, them what you have, and they can either if, if they like it, they'll use it. If they don't, which is rare, but it, it happens occasionally, then they don't. Yeah. There's no harm, no foul. Yeah. Well, that's that's from a lifetime of experience and from from doing this you know, so many times and, and just having the good intuition, it seems insane to think that somebody would, would get too involved in telling you what to play on a keyboard. That just seems ridiculous. But I guess that's the way some people approach recording or gigging or whatever. And a lot of what I'm saying today and, and for you, for your listeners out there, um, I'm kind of sharing with you what I got meeting Keith Richards, uh, in 1974, maybe 75, uh, just outside of Amsterdam, at a gig Little Feet played at the uh, Job Eden Hall. And uh, the Rolling Stones en masse came to hear Little Feet that evening with their wives and girlfriends and whatever. Mm-hmm. And, and that's kind of intimidating, you know, having mm-hmm. the Stones there on stage watching you. I've had it happen with with same thing, Jerry Garcia checking our group out, Bob Dylan, yeah. and he and I talked about it. He was at a gig. Uh, in New York that we played at the bottom line. He says, oh, you remember, you remember that, Bill? And I go, yeah, Bob, I remember you. <laughs> you scared the hell out of me. <laughs> you were yeah. like in the third row looking up, and I was like, oh, my oh, God, God, it's Bob Dylan. Well, this time in 75, I'm sitting there, and, and I, again, I'm just, we're in the basement. We're meeting everybody. I go up to Keith. I go, Keith, oh. You know, I, I, I was just beside myself. He grabs me and pulls me towards him, and he says, oh, mate, we're all part of the same cloth. Oh, it's his man. way of welcoming, welcoming yeah. me to the club. Yeah. And I thought, God, if Keith Richards is welcoming me to the club, I must be in the club. And when I was mm-hmm. reading his autobiography, or not his autobiography, but his biography that he wrote yeah. with another guy, he was talking about being, meeting and on tour with Muddy Waters and Little Richard and having that same epiphany that if he was there with those cats, as he called them, I believe, that I must be one of the cats. That was what he shared with me. And I, I just, and kind of don't, don't worry. Like we're, 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 we're not you know, judging whatever you. We're, we're doing as uh, anything in life as musicians. We're, we're, we're all part of the same scene. Yeah, man. And, and, and we are literally, I mean, we're, we're, mm-hmm. uh, I don't care if people, the only thing they've ever done in their lives is played in a garage and never got it out of there. They know what it's like to, to sit there and try and learn a song and to argue with the bass player, or the drummer or the, or the singer or, or go home and doubt themselves and, or come back yeah. one night and go, God, that was magic. Absolute magic. What we did. That's, 
that, that's what it's about. That's exactly. And that happens on, on every level. Yeah. Well, this has been amazing to, to talk to you, Bill, and thanks so much for your insight. And it was a pleasure. Uh, and thank you so much. I knew we, I, I told you we were going to have a conversation and you know, love we it. All down and, it's and fantastic. Great to hear. Really so much. nice meeting you. You too, Bill. Good to talk with you. All right, everybody. Thanks for listening. That concludes my two-part conversation with Bill Payne. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next month for another episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. See you then. Thanks for listening, everybody. The Music Makers and Soul Shakers podcast was recorded in Nashville, Tennessee at the Hen House Studio. Don't forget to follow us on social media and please subscribe to the show at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify Podcasts. And you can find us online at makersandshakerspodcast.com. As always, thanks to Jeremy Holmes in Vancouver for help with research. And we'll see you next month for another chilling episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. See you then. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.